Okay, so how many of you guys uh, have played the old school computer video game Oregon Trail? Anybody? Yeah? So you're showing your age, that's for sure. How many have never even heard of Oregon Trail? Yeah? You're also showing your not <laughs> So it was like, it was back when ones and zeros were kind of really just dictating the game. It was not, not super sophisticated, but you basically were a, a settler that was leaving the eastern part of the United States and setting out for Oregon with your wagon and you could buy like cows and uh, oxen. And I, I kind of forget, I just remember it being really primitive and really early in the uh, evolution of video games. But it was sure fun. Um, and I was thinking of it this week when I was reading about Pilgrim Settlements. And I was, I was just reading a little bit about how uh, people that left the East, they, they, they struck out into a new land and they went there with the hopes of having their own space. And at the time, they were given quarter sections of land. You can imagine that. You're like, if you leave here and you start a settlement, if you head out west and you have the wherewithal to, to build yourself a sod hut or like some kind of a log cabin or something, we're going to just give you a quarter section of land and you can be the original homesteader. You can, you can have this dream of your family growing up in Colorado or in uh, Nevada or, you know, someplace on the way to Oregon. And so as you might imagine, maybe you could imagine, you in that position. You're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a fast horse because when it comes to, comes to the time, I wanna make sure I get the best piece of land. And so you're kind of competing with other adventurous types that are heading out west looking for their plot. And then once you get your flag in the ground, it's kind of, it's yours. So you wanna make a good pick. So I, what I was reading about is as this unfolded, inevitably, People would get their portion of land, and guess where they'd build their house? Where would you build your house if you got, uh, you know, maybe you think of something sort of geographical, like you kind of like to be near the, the river or, or whatever. But generally speaking, you want to guess where people built their houses? Middle. Dead center. You know, they're like, we want to make sure we can sort of survey all of our land. So we want to see, that, like, this place that we have landed, we want to be able to look 360 and see our quarter section. And so if we're in the middle, we can kind of protect it. But what I was reading about is that as people started to take photos of settlers that had sort of found these portions of land and put their house in the middle, uh, the photos would come back with these like wild looking men and like kind of this haunted look on the, on the faces of the women and like the children looked really crazy and stuff. And they're like, there's something going on out west. These settlers that are putting their houses in the middle. And remember, there's no phones, there's no social media, there's not, obviously, you gotta get in your wagon and, and ride, like, your, your whole section and then into somebody else's section all the way to their house just to meet up. So it was really isolating time. And so they, they noticed that people went a little wild when uh, they didn't have others around them. Um, I'm curious, how long do you think you would thrive alone. Anybody in here an introvert? Yeah? Okay, so this is for the introverts. How long can you do it? You know, like, at, at what point is it like, okay, now I gotta get out of this room and go and see someone? Like, I'm, I'm asking. How long do you think you can go? Yeah? I think in the winter, 
<laughs> it's in the winter, okay. And then you start to get that luck. Well, you can't even leave your house because of the weather. Okay, yeah, all right. Um, yeah, so this is this was sort of how things evolved on the homestead, is that people started building their homes on the corner of their section with other people on the corners of their sections. And so they started to make these little four-person or, or three-family communities just for the sake that being too isolated started to have really drastic effects on both the owners and their families, which I think is fascinating. You know, I, I did a bunch of reading this week about, um, about folks that were imprisoned in solitary confinement. I, I did some reading about people and like how long you can exist alone before you start to have actual changes in your brain chemistry. Uh, it's a thing. It's a real thing. And it doesn't mean that the more you're around people, the less crazy you are. That's not like the, the thing to derive from it. But and more so that if you are never around people, or it starts to become a theme where you're isolating too much, it can have damaging impacts. There's a study that Harvard's doing, and it, the reason I'm interested in it is because it's been going on for 85 years. So they've been tracking uh, people, the same 2,000 people for 85 years. Obviously some of them aren't with us any longer. But they've been trying to measure over the course of a lifetime things that they could kind of equate with health and happiness. And the thing that comes out, like beyond anything else, there's really only one major factor, and they say it's healthy relationships. So the only thing that's common among these 2,000 people over 85 years, as it relates to health and happiness, is healthy relationships. And so today we're talking a bit about what it means to be together, what it means to be a group of people that we describe as a spiritual family or we describe in other ways. So um, can, we, can we stop for a second, open our hearts to what God wants to say to us as a church this morning, and uh, then we'll dive into a few passages. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God, for this space. Thank you that uh, we have a place to come back to. I was just thinking about under what other circumstance would we be in the room with each other uh, as often as we are if it weren't church. And so we just, even on, on that level, recognize that what this is is unique. Uh, we recognize that it's something that isn't always easy, that pushes us, that stretches us, that isn't nece necessarily in line with our favorite things, thinking of the greeting time, for example. Um, but we know that it's good. We know that being around others, even people we don't necessarily fully agree with or people that think really differently from us is a positive thing. It's a stretching thing or something that makes us grow. And so as we think more deeply about that this morning, our aim is to invite you to show us how together we are better than just as individuals. In particular, as we're asking where you want us to move as a community, what you want us to focus on in these next seasons and so on, we invite you to show us your name. Okay. All right, so first uh, assignment is uh, I want to challenge you folks to come up with a metaphor. Okay, so we all know what a metaphor is, right? So it's like some way of comparing something um, to, to give it a fresh angle. Uh, and I want you to think of a metaphor.
what we're doing here, okay, for a church community. How would you describe it? Okay, what, what's a helpful metaphor? And you can't use the ones from Scripture, okay? That's cheating. But um, is there some way that you would describe what this is? Why this is valuable? Or why this is something that you're at some level part of? What would be a way that you would think of it? Okay, I'm going to give you actual 30 seconds to talk to the person beside you. Uh, let's see if, who can come up with a decent metaphor. Okay, go for it. Clock's ticking. Highlight the main point of each one. 
So in Scripture we see the Apostle Paul use the word field, that the church is like a field. I didn't remember this one. Um, I, I, it's in there, you know, but I didn't remember ever reading that. But the, the idea is that we are God's field. We're the place that God can grow things, where God grows community. It's kind of a neat picture, isn't it, of, of a community being a place where God can plant things and see them change and grow and morph into something richer and better over time. Okay, let's go to the second one. The olive tree, that the church is described as an olive tree. Now you might remember this, the, the, the background of this is that there's deep roots in an olive tree, and the Jewish tradition was sort of the, uh, the deep roots of the olive tree, but then true belief started to wane in the olive tree, so some of the branches got broken off. Um, and then new branches were grafted in. And so this is a picture of how the, uh, the church has morphed and changed over time. Where, um, where Gentiles or people that aren't Jewish have been grafted in to this ongoing uh, reality of the olive tree. Let's go to number three. Uh, a flock. You've heard this one, right? We follow the good shepherd. You might think of the sheep and the, the sheep. The sheep. And the goats example, where you know there's there's sort of a difference in the way that we're living, that the good shepherd leads us in different ways and so on. Um, the flock is another one that uh, that we we think of when we think of what it means to be a communal group. Okay, number four, marriage. So the the church is described as the bride of Christ. That there's this covenantal connection between a whole bunch of people that are aiming in the direction of following after Jesus and Jesus himself. That there's the idea of uh, a committed covenantal connection um, that, we, that we experience as a community. Okay, number five. Uh, and obviously I'm just whipping through these so we can say lots more, but I think you'll all thank me for not saying lots more about them. So we have uh, you know time to get to Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. But number five is the vine. Uh, this one sort of relates to uh, the life source. You remember, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15 is the passage where we learn about um, anchoring ourselves into a vine is, is how we sort of learn to exist as followers of Jesus, led by God's Spirit, empowered by, by God. Number six. The temple of the Spirit. So we see this in Ephesians 2, this this idea of becoming building blocks. So the Apostle Paul likes to describe us as part of God's ultimate building project, where, you know, there's the first layer of stones that have been fashioned to provide a good foundation. Those are the apostles. And then each generation has like another layer. So if you think about bricks that are being stacked on top of each other, kind of fashioning spiritual building blocks that keep building something. Something that stays straight and that doesn't fall over over time. Okay, number seven. And then family. I think that was Jordana's this morning. Um, but yeah, good one. Uh, it's on the list. Part, part of being part of God's household. So this is where we get some of those, those uh, lines like we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Or treat each other as mothers or as brothers or as sisters. We see in Ephesians, God being the father in that motif. And so we, uh, we certainly can relate to that. We use that terminology a lot here, don't we? Where we say, like, this is a big spiritual family. We've got to know each other's names if we want to be family. So let's all greet each other. And all the extroverts are you know, hard to get back. And all the introverts are like, when is this going to go? 
Um, but that's just kind of how we think about it. Okay, the last one, that, uh, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but the body. Okay, the body, I think, is the one that the Apostle Paul seems to be using all over the place. He's talking about when you folks get together, when you become a community, think of it like a body. And because each of us has a body, it's a pretty accessible metaphor, right? And so that's where we're going to spend a bit of time today. But suffice to say that in some places, Paul talks about Christ as the head of the body. Um, and other places, it's just implied. But that's kind of the idea that we're working with here, is that Christ as the head of the body invites us to participate as different parts of a cohesive whole. Alright, so let's put the passage up together and we'll have a peek at it. This is uh, from 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and we're just, with, we're, we're not going to spend a ton of time, but we're, we're just going to work our way through, okay? Unity and diversity in the body. Now just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. So this is this idea that, like, we have all come into this community in an equal way. That it's because of who God is and because of God's invitation that we're part of this weird community that we call a church. Alright? Um, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we're all given one spirit to drink. In other words, it's not because of our pedigree or our family history, our family tree. It's, that isn't what makes us part of the body. It's us receiving the invitation of God's Spirit and becoming part of it. Yeah. Even so, the body's not made up of one part, but of many. Okay, so in this text, it doesn't explicitly say that Jesus is the head of the body. But like I said, we look at other places and it explicitly says that, like in Colossians or in Romans. But um, I want to, for a second... Just hit pause on the scripture and talk about uh, what it means to, uh, to, to think of Jesus as the brains of the operation. Okay? So we're going to slow this down and think about like, what does a brain actually do? We have a, an image, Ben, that you don't mind. Um, this, this is uh, the brain. And... Uh, handsome person there with their brain on his way. And you can see as you read through the list some of the different... One person thought that was funny. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Here come to everything I ever talk about. Um, so, just, just to help us get the, the idea of the metaphor, and I don't think I don't think at the time when Paul wrote this that he had access to like what the frontal lobe did or anything. But I do think that sometimes it, when, we, when we tease it out and we get into the, the minutia of what a brain actually does, and then we bring that back to the spiritual metaphor, there's a couple of little learnings that can happen. So this is what our brains do. There's, there's control of, of, muscle, of voluntary muscles. There's skin sensations like temperature and pressure and pain. Uh, the frontal lobe is responsible for movement and problem solving, for concentrating, for thinking. It's interesting when we think about Jesus as the brains behind the spiritual community, how some of these words connect, right? The speech control, like what we say, what's important to us, the hearing, the language, the memory, 
There's the brain stem is, re is responsible for consciousness and for things that we don't think about that just happen. Okay, so that's an, that's an interesting one. Our brains do things on that keep the body on autopilot. And what would be examples of that in the metaphor? Where Jesus has the brains of the operation. There's just certain things that are given in the lifeblood of the church. You know, we don't have to even think about it to know that that's what we should do. So as we're thinking in terms of discerning where we head as, as, a, as a church, we don't have to wonder if, like, kindness is something that should be part of who we are, or love, you know? Those are kind of like breathing, or the heart rate, I think, where the brains of the operation doesn't ask us to say, Lord, please help us know in this next season if we should be loving. You know, no, that's like, that's the, that's brainstem equivalent stuff, okay? Um, and we can go on and on. But suffice to say that when we look at this body imagery, we're looking at... Jesus as the control center operating with the nervous system that helps us stay in step with where God is taking us. You know, I thought we could get into the nervous system and maybe that's the Holy Spirit or something. But yeah, I don't want to go too far into the metaphor and make it something that it was never meant to be. So let's go back to the passage. All right, so are you picturing this? That we together make up parts of the body Jesus as the head of the body, the one leading and guiding us, taking us in a direction that we should go. And to the point of the nervous system, most parts of our body connect to the brain independently through the nervous system. Okay? And I think that's kind of a helpful thing, that each of us has an individual connection with the brains of the operation, but we're also working interdependently under the headship of the brain. Tracking with me? Okay. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. It's like, I'm just a measly foot. No. <laughs> no. It's like, you're a foot. You might not look like a hand. You might not operate like a hand. But we need feet. Um, and you can see how that becomes, it's almost laughable how, like, obvious the analogy is here. But I think that's kind of the point. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm just a little ear, I don't belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, which is absurd, you know, but if the whole body, if, if we were all defined by just one role, if we were just all good at one thing, and like what it meant to be the church was just being one thing really well. Like I think that's what they're getting at. It's absurd that you think of this eye bouncing around or something. But because, I'm not, no, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Where would the sense of balance be? That's what the Apostle Paul's getting at. Where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts of one body. Just one more section here. The eye cannot say to the hand, okay, now this, this is where it gets a little self, let's do a little introspection here, okay? How many of you are like me, where when you're, when you're tackling a problem, you come up with a solution and you're convinced that your solution is the right one? You know? Anybody ever feel that way? Yeah? Well, let's not do a group project together. <laughs> We all do, right? We all 
because we, we would only call it a solution if we think it's the right one. But the problem is, is if we're an ear, we might look at a solution differently than an eye would. You know, and if we're a foot, we're concerned about the things we're stepping on more than the hand might be, and so on. And so this sounds trite and sort of like something you, you, you use with four or five year olds, but it really makes the point, doesn't it? That sometimes we get so wired to the kind of role that we're gifted for or the way our brains think that we have blind spots of how the rest of the body might interpret certain things. And so what the Apostle Paul's driving at here is that if we want to operate under the headship of, of God, under Jesus' headship, we have to learn to appreciate that people arrive at things in different ways than we do. And if it is different the way they arrive at it, it doesn't make us worse. It actually rounds us out. Now, if sometimes people arrive at things that are just wrong, and what's great about that is that in a physical body, usually, there's like two hands, but in the spiritual body, there's like billions, millions of hands, like people like that are the hands of the body. And, and so we, we have one another to discern that e even as a hand, I think we should submit this to the other hands and say, do the hands all agree that this is a hand way of seeing this? You get what I'm saying? As an eye, I see it this way, but all the other eyes are like, eh, I don't know. And that's where this, this metaphor kind of breaks down, that there's way more than just two eyes in the body. There's way more than just two hands. But that's what keeps us from being too wired by the way that we see things. I love this next part. Um, the eye can't save the hand, I don't need you. The head can't save the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Sorry, that just feels like a, you know? The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are the ones that are indispensable. Those are the ones that this kind of community needs more than anything else. People that other communities would say, they don't matter. This kind of community says they're indispensable. Love that. And the parts that we think are less honorable, this kind of community says we treat those parts with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So a few years ago, when we were... Um, and we were, and I, Ricky, I didn't ask if I could share this story, but I'm hoping it's... Go right ahead. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, a few years ago, when we were getting ready to do the building project, uh, Ricky did something that I just thought was shocking and, uh, and awesome. On a, on a Sunday morning in Heritage Park, in the middle of our gathering, we had set some financial goals to figure out how much we wanted to raise in order to see if we wanted to, to purchase a building at the time we didn't know about it. And so it was a way where we were discerning in the life plan last time together. What do we do next? How do we do this? And, and I don't think at the time Ricky had much money. And so Ricky did something that I thought was so inspiring. Ricky arrived with a whole bunch of stuff 
and had like an impromptu picnic table garage set. And it was saying, this is, this is what I have to offer. And so Ricky came and put Ricky's goods on the table. And uh, some of us saw things that we needed. And so we paid Ricky some money for them. And it raised money that Ricky could give. Now, a short time after that, um, we had this. This is one of my favorite stories, but warning it sometimes I get a little teary-eyed telling it. Sometime after that, we had made a goal as a community where we said, if we reach $25,000 by the end of 2014, that's when that was, 10 years, almost 10 years ago, then, we'll, uh, then we'll, we'll explore kind of taking this big step of faith at the time for us, which was to leave our rental situation as a church and to locate ourselves in a neighborhood in the downtown by buying a building. And so it was, the, it was the last opportunity to give. And we, it kind of had gotten turned into, like, if we make the 25000 God bless it. And if we don't, don't. But it was never meant to be that. You know, we kind of, but, you know, we were all motivated. And so we had one, one week left, and we were around 20, I think around 21000 So we had 4000 bucks to go to hit our goal and say, okay, it feels like we're in this together. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Ricky. But Ricky came up and, uh, and gave me five bucks and said, I want this to be my contribution toward this goal. Which I thought was awesome. I don't know if, the, if that five bucks came from the garage sale, but you know, they kind of are connected. And so at the end of that day, we tallied up all that we had received. And um, remember the goal is 25,000. We had exactly $25,001.50. You know, and so it was a scenario where your contribution, without it, we wouldn't have been put over the top. And like for me, that just reminded me of how this kind of community sees small actions as massive things. You know, $5 doesn't necessarily seem like much in the world we live in. But because of what it was for and where it came from and the heart behind it, it's become one of my favorite stories in the whole time of the party. Who in the room do you see uh, as, a, as a dynamic part of New Heights? I was thinking about Dennis, who counted the, the money year after year after year in that room. You know, I, I, I'm not actually, if I start listening, I'm going to just for sure leave people out. But maybe rhetorically, who do, you, who do you know is part of this community that's maybe someone that doesn't receive a lot of recognition, but we need them because it's what makes the fibers of who we are reflect the head that we're under. a lot of time 
learning about pain. And uh, what's interesting is this, this one, I wasn't going to talk about this today, but don't you hate it when you're, you're ready to do your talk and then things get switched last minute on you? It's not the worst. <laughs> um, no, it's good. But this is, what I, what I was reading about is Yancey and, and Dr. Paul Brand um, spent some time thinking about pain and how pain works. And they said, I'm going to have to read some of this, but they said typically theologians sort of write off pain as just like a result of like sin in the world and the fall. And we miss aspects that are so important about how the body and pain teach us things. And so this is what they say. They say every square millimeter of the body has a different sensitivity to pain. So that a speck of dirt may cause excruciating pain in your eye, whereas it would go unreported on like, your hands. Internal organs, such as bowels and kidneys, have no receptors that warn <coughs> against cutting or burning. They, they, they don't need them. Dangers they normally do not face. But they show an exquisite sensitivity to distension. When organs such as the heart detect danger, but don't have receptors, they borrow others' pain cells. Okay? So when the heart is in danger, you, have you heard of referred pain where the shoulder hurts? They're borrowing receptors from the shoulder to communicate pain. The pain system automatically ramps up hypersensitivity to protect injured parts. It explains why a sore thumb always seems in the way. You know, it's like we've hurt our thumb, and it's like all we can think about, you know? And it turns down the volume in the face of emergencies, like soldiers reported no pain from a wound in the course of battle until afterwards. Pain serves us subliminally as well. Sensors make us blink several times a minute to lubricate our eyes and shift our legs and buttocks to prevent pressure sores. Pain is the most effective language the body can use to draw attention to something important. Pain is the most effective language the body can use to draw us to something important. Do you think that that could be linked over to our discussion of the body, like this kind of body? That pain, that the things that bother us, the things that are missing, the things that have gone sideways or where people have been hurt, where people have lost something dear to them, or where they had expectations that were unmet and so on, that that could be part of how we discern how the head, who's, who's defined by love and compassion, wants us to be as a community? How do we respond to pain? And maybe even more so, what can we learn from the pains that have been part of our communal experience? These guys are saying pain gives us access to things we might not see from any other end. So this morning we, uh, we got together as a group upstairs. And it wasn't a huge group, but um, it was a great group. Six of us spent some time praying about what it means to be a discerning church. And so we turned the Lord's Prayer into six different categories, di different ways to pray. And then we prayed through the different ways that Scripture describes the church. 
And we're just kind of looking for things that God might say to us. And so I want to lend that to you. Like we talked about God's character and kingdom, God's provision, forgiveness, direction, and protection. And, and it was a meaningful time. And the reason I bring it up is because we're talking about the body today because as we enter this season of discerning over October and November as a community, what I really want us to lean into is that we are looking for uh, direction more than making decisions. They were looking for, for God's direction, not for the brightest brains to make great decisions. And it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. It's a thing that needs more than one person. Because if the eye thinks they don't need the ear, then it's going to be a really eye-shaped decision. And so this morning as we were praying, lots came out of that. Um, and lots, lots of great things. But I would invite you in your own time, when you're at home, whatever, to, to spend some time being open to God's spirit about the pains that have been part of your church experience. Because I have a feeling that some of the things that have hurt us or that we've missed or that we think are dumb or we don't understand are probably an angle into things the Spirit wants to show us about being a more Christ-like place. Okay, so I'm going to end with this uh, last word. I'm conscious of the fact that being discerning is something that some folks in the in the space here are like, oh yeah, I'd be familiar with that. I'm discerning. I try to be discerning. I have ways that I that I put myself in a space where I can be discerning and so on. Whereas others might be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know what you mean by discerning. And so that, we're gonna we're gonna take our time over the next two months to explore that together. And the great thing about uh, a community is there are people that are further along in that journey than others, and we can help one another. I think that discerning together is actually a way of being the church, ironically. That, that it's like the, the, what's the expression where the end is the goal of the main, you know the one? I'm it. The end justifies the means? The end justifies the means? Or, <laughs> okay, yeah. What I'm trying to say is that, like, we're, what's that again? <laughs> yeah, the whole, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Not what I meant, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say, and you guys can think of the cliche and then tell me what it is, is that the process of going through to, to search out a goal of where we want to head is as important as the goal. That's what I'm trying to say. That being a group that puts ourselves before God to listen and pause is as important as what we find out in that process. That that maybe is part of just being the church. Okay, so I said I was going to end with this. Like, wrap it up. Come on. Okay, so Carolyn Ahrens is a, is a Christian musician. And she got to tour with one of my heroes, a guy by the name of Rich Mullins. And she talks about how after people would get to interact with, uh, after, after concerts and stuff, Rich Mullins would hang out with people, get chat with them and stuff. And so she said, more than once a fan asked Rich how to discern the will of God. You know, they're like, you know, we trust you. We love how your life is on display as someone that's really trying to discern God's will. 
And so they'd ask. And he'd say, I don't think finding God's plan for you has to be complicated. God's will is that you love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And also that you love your neighbor as yourself. That's like that brain stem kind of stuff. You don't have to wonder. Yeah, that's just a given. Get busy with that. And then, if God wants you to do something unusual, he'll take care of it. Say, for example, I love this. He wants you to go to Egypt. He said, she said, Rich would pause for a moment before flashing his trademark God wants you to go to Egypt. If that's the case, he'll provide 11 jealous brothers and they'll sell you into slavery. <laughs> See, that's a painful story. Right? But it's a story where good news was needed. And I think painful stories point us toward discerning why our world would be interested in our news. It better be good, or else I'm not interested. She says, when I find myself wrestling with life decisions, I think of Rich as Egypt principle. It makes me laugh, and then it asks me to get down to the serious business of determining which of my options allow me to best love God. God, as we continue to place our community before you as we continue to open your word and see what it says uh, for us in this time as we continue to listen to each other we invite you to show us how to see uh, one another we invite you to shift our attitude if it's uh, one that's too arrogant or egotistical or self-focused we invite you to implant us with curiosity as it relates to the perspective of those around us. Not curiosity just so we can say, there, I listen, now let's do my idea. But real curiosity that says, how do you see this? Where are you um, experiencing goodness? Where has this been painful for you? And so on. We pray that the act of pausing to ask these questions would find us together as a community. And we pray for those that feel like they don't have anything to contribute, that this passage would, um, would be encouraging, that, that we are a community where small actions done in obedience are monumental. That's what defines us. And so help us to continue to be defined by people of all types being part of a body that's focused on the head. Alright folks, I think